0: Chapter Thirty-Two of The Titan by Theodore Dreiser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A supper party. Since the days in which Aileen had been left more or less lonely by Cowperwood, however, no two individuals had been more faithful in their attentions than Taylor Lord and Kent McKibben. Both were fond of her in a general way, finding her interesting physically and temperamentally. But, being beholden to the magnate, for many favors they were exceedingly circumspect in their attitude toward her, particularly during those early years in which they knew that Cowperwood was intensely devoted to her. Later, they were not so careful. It was during this latter period that Aileen came gradually, through the agency of these two men, to share in a form of mid-world life that was not utterly dull. In every large city there is a kind of social half-world, where artists and the more adventurous of the socially unconventional and restless meet for an exchange of things which cannot be counted mere social form and civility. It is the age-old world of Bohemia. Hither resort those accidentals of fancy that make the stage the drawing-room, and all the schools of artistic endeavor, interesting or peculiar. In a number of studios in Chicago, such as those of Lane Cross and Reese Crier, such little circles were to be found. Reese Crier, for instance, a purely parlor artist, with all the airs, conventions, and social adaptability of the tribe, had quite a following. Here, and to several other places by turns, Taylor Lord and Kent McKibben conducted Eileen, both asking and obtaining permission to be civil to her when Cowperwood was away. Among the friends of these two at this time was a certain Polk Lind, an interesting society figure whose father owned an immense reaper works and whose time was spent in idling, racing, gambling, socializing, anything in short, that it came into his head to do. He was tall, dark, athletic, straight, muscular, with a small dark mustache, dark, black-brown eyes, kinky black hair, and a fine, almost military carriage, which he clothed always to the best advantage. A clever philanderer, it was quite his pride that he did not boast of his conquests. One look at him, however, by the initiated, and the story was told. Eileen first saw him on a visit to the studio of Reese Crier. Being introduced to him very casually on this occasion, she was nevertheless clearly conscious that she was encountering a fascinating man, and that he was fixing her with a warm, avid eye. For the moment she recoiled from him as being a little too brazen in his stare, and yet she admired the general appearance of him. He was of that smart world that she admired so much, and from which now apparently she was hopelessly debarred. That Trig bold air of his realized for her at last the type of man, outside of Cowperwood, whom she would prefer within limits to admire her. If she were going to be bad, as she would have phrased it to herself, she would be bad with a man such as he. He would be winsome and coaxing, but at the same time strong, direct, deliciously brutal, like her frank. He had, too, what Cowperwood could not have, a certain social air or swagger, which came with idleness, much loafing, a sense of social superiority and security, a devil-may-care insouciance, which wrecks little of other people's will or whims. When she next saw him, which was several weeks later at an affair of the Courtney Tabers, friends of Lord's, He exclaimed, "'Oh, yes, by George. You're the Mrs. Cowperwood I met several weeks ago at Reese Cryer's studio. I've not forgotten you. I've seen you in my eye, all over Chicago. Taylor Lord introduced me to you. Say, but you're a beautiful woman.' He leaned ingratiatingly, whimsically, and admiringly near. Eileen realized that, for so early in the afternoon, and considering the crowd, he was curiously enthusiastic. The truth was, that because of some rounds he had made elsewhere, he was verging towards too much liquor. His eye was alight, his color coppery, his air swagger, devil may care, bacchanal. This made her a little cautious, but she rather liked his brown hard face, handsome mouth, and crisp Jovian curls. His compliment was not utterly improper but she nevertheless attempted coyly to avoid him. "'Come, Polk, here's an old friend of yours over here. Sadie Boutwell, she wants to meet you again,' someone observed, catching him by the arm. "'No, you don't,' he exclaimed genially, and yet at the same time a little resentfully. The kind of disjointed resentment a man who has had the least bit too much is apt to feel on being interrupted.' I'm not going to walk all over Chicago thinking of a woman I've seen somewhere, only to be carried away the first time I do meet her. I'm going to talk to her first. Eileen laughed. It's charming of you, but we can meet again, perhaps. Besides, there's someone here. Lord was tactfully directing her attention to another woman. Reese Cryer and McKibben, who were present also, came to her assistance. In the hubbub that ensued, Eileen was temporarily extricated, and Lynde tactfully steered out of her way. But they had met again, and it was not to be the last time. Subsequent to this second meeting, Lynde thought the matter over quite calmly, and decided that he must make a definite effort to become more intimate with Eileen. Though she was not as young as some others, she suited his present mood exactly. She was rich physically voluptuous, and sentient. She was not of his world precisely, but what of it? She was the wife of an eminent financier, who had been in society once, and she herself had a dramatic record. He was sure of that. He could win her if he wanted to. It would be easy, knowing her as he did, and knowing what he did about her. So not long after, Lynn ventured to invite her, with Lord McKibben mr and mrs reese crier and a young girl friend of mrs crier's who was rather attractive a miss Cristobal landman to a theater and supper party the program was to hear a reigning farce at hooleys then to sup at the richelieu and finally to visit a certain exclusive gambling parlor which then flourished on the south side the resort of actors society gamblers and the like where roulette Trante, Carant, Baccarat, and the honest game of poker, to say nothing of various other games of chance could be played amid exceedingly recherche surroundings. The party was gay, especially after the adjournment to the Richelieu, where special dishes of chicken, lobster, and a bucket of champagne were served. Later at the Alcott Club, as the gambling resort was known, Eileen, according to Lynde, was to be taught to play baccarat, poker, and any other game that she wished. You follow my advice, Mrs. Cowperwood, he observed, cheerfully at dinner. Being host, he had put her between himself and McKibben, and I'll show you how to get your money back anyhow. That's more than some others can do, he added, spiritedly, recalling by a look a recent occasion when he and McKibben, being out with friends, the latter had advised liberally, and had seen his advice go wrong. "'Have you been gambling?' Kent asked Eileen, archly, turning to her long-time social mentor and friend. "'No, I can honestly say I haven't,' replied McKibben, with a bland smile. "'I may have thought I was gambling, but I admit I don't know how. Now, poke here. Wins all the time, don't you, poke? Just follow him.' A wry smile spread over Lynn's face at this, for it was on record in certain circles that he had lost as much as ten and even fifteen thousand dollars in an evening. he also had a record of winning twenty-five thousand once at Baccarat at an all-night and all-day sitting and then losing it. Lynde all through the evening had been casting hard and meaningful glances into Eileen's eyes. She could not avoid this, and she did not feel that she wanted to. He was so charming. He was talking to her half the time at the theater, without apparently addressing or even seeing her. Eileen knew well enough what was in his mind. At times, quite as in those days when she had first met Cowperwood, she felt an unwilled titillation in her blood. Her eyes brightened. It was just possible that she could come to love a man like this, although it would be hard it would serve Cowperwood right for neglecting her. Yet, even now, the shadow of Cowperwood was over her, but also the desire for love and a full sex life. In the gambling rooms was gathered an interested and fairly smart throng, actors, actresses, clubmen, one or two very emancipated women of the high local social world, and a number of more or less gentlemanly young gamblers. Both Lord and McKibben began suggesting column numbers for first plays to their protégés, while Lynn leaned caressingly over Eileen's powdered shoulders. "'Let me put this on a cutter premiere for you,' he suggested, throwing down a $20 gold piece. "'Oh, but let it be my money,' complained Eileen. "'I want to play with my money. I won't feel that it's mine if I don't.' "'Very well. But you can't just now.' "'You can't play with bills.' She was extracting a crisp roll from her purse. "'I'll have to exchange them later for you for gold. You can pay me then.' He's going to call now, anyhow. "'There you are. He's done it. Wait a moment. You may win.' And he paused to study the little ball as it circled round and round above the receiving pockets. "'Let me see. How much do I get if I win Cotter Premier?' She was trying to recall her experiences abroad. Ten for one, replied Lynn, but you didn't get it. Let's try it once more for luck. It comes up every so often, once in ten or twelve. I've made it often on a first play. How long has it been since the last cotter premiere? he asked of a neighbor who he recognized. Seven, I think, Polk. Six or seven. How's tricks? Oh, so-so. He turned again to Eileen. "'It ought to come up now, soon. I always make it a rule to double my plays each time. It gets you back all you've lost some time or other.' He put down two twenties. "'Goodness!' she exclaimed. "'That will be two hundred. I had forgotten that.' Just then, the call came for all placements to cease, and Eileen directed her attention to the ball. It circled and circled in its dizzy way, and then suddenly dropped, Lost again, commented Lynde. Well, now, we'll make it eighty. And he threw down four twenties. Just for luck, we'll put something on thirty-six and thirteen and nine. With an easy air, he laid one hundred dollars in gold on each number. Eileen liked his manner. This was like Frank. Lind had the cool spirit of a plunger. His father, recognizing his temperament, had set over a large fixed sum to be paid to him annually. She recognized, as in Cowperwood, the spirit of adventure, only working out in another way. Lynde was perhaps destined to come to some startling, reckless end. But what of it? He was a gentleman. His position in life was secure. That had always been Eileen's sad, secret thought. Hers had not been, and might never be, now. Oh, I'm getting foozled already, she exclaimed gaily, reverting to a girlhood habit of clapping her hands. How much will I win if I win? The gesture attracted attention, even as the ball fell. By George, you have it, exclaimed Lynn, who was watching the croupier. Eight hundred, two hundred, two hundred. He was counting to himself, but we lost thirteen. Very good. That makes us nearly one thousand ahead, counting out. What we put down. Rather nice for a beginning, don't you think? Now, if you'll take my advice, you'll not play Kater Premier any more for a while. Suppose you double a 13, you lost on that, and play Bates' formula. I'll show you what that is." Already because he was known to be a plunger, Lynde was gathering a few spectators behind him and Eileen, fascinated and not knowing these mysteries of chance, was content to watch him. At one stage of the playing, Lynne leaned over, and, seeing her smile, whispered, "'What adorable hair and eyes you have. You glow like a great rose. You have a radiance that is wonderful.' "'Oh, Mr. Lynne, how you talk. Does gambling always affect you this way?' "'No, you do. Always, apparently.' And he stared hard into her upturned eyes, still playing ostensibly for Eileen's benefit, He now doubled the cash deposit on his system, laying down a thousand in gold. Eileen urged him to play for himself and let her watch. "'I'll just put a little money on these odd numbers here and there, and you play any system you want. How will that do?' "'No, not at all,' he replied feelingly. "'You're my luck. I play with you. You keep the gold for me. I'll make you a fine present if I win. The losses are mine.' just as you like i don't know really enough about it to play but i surely get the nice present if you win you do win or lose he murmured and now you put the money on the numbers i call twenty on seven eighty on thirteen eighty on thirty twenty on nine fifty on twenty-four he was following a system of his own and in obedience aileen's white plump arm reached here and there while the spectators paused, realizing that heavier playing was being done by this pair than by anyone else. Lind was plunging for effect. He lost a thousand and fifty dollars at one clip. "'Oh, all that good money!' exclaimed Eileen, mocked pathetically, as the croupier raked it in. "'Never mind, we'll get it back,' exclaimed Lynd, throwing two one-thousand-dollar bills to the cashier give me gold for those the man gave him a double handful which he put down between aileen's white arms one hundred on two one hundred on four one hundred on six one hundred on eight the pieces were five-dollar gold pieces and aileen quickly built up the little yellow stacks and shoved them in place again the other players stopped and began to watch the odd pair aileen's red-gold head and peaked cheeks and swimming eyes, her body swathed in silks and rich laces, and Lind erect, his shirt-bosom snowy white, his face dark, almost coppery, his eyes and hair black. They were, indeed, a strikingly assorted pair. "'What's this, what's this?' asked Cryer, coming up. "'Who's plunging? You, Mrs. Cowperwood?' "'Not plunging,' replied Lynde indifferently. "'We're merely working out. A formula, Mrs. Cowperwood and I, were doing it together. Eileen smiled. She was in her element at last. She was beginning to shine. She was attracting attention. One hundred on twelve, one hundred on eighteen, one hundred on twenty-six. Good heavens! What are you up to, Lind? Exclaimed Lord, leaving Mrs. Reese and coming over. She followed. Strangers also were gathering. The business of the place was at its topmost toss it being two o'clock in the morning and the rooms were full how interesting observed miss landman at the other end of the table pausing in her playing and staring mckibben who was beside her also paused they're plunging do look at all that money goodness isn't she daring looking and he aileen's shining arm was moving deftly showily about Look at those bills he's breaking. Lind was taking out a thick layer of fresh yellow bills, which he was exchanging for gold. They make a striking pair, don't they?" The board was now practically covered with Lind's gold in quaint little stacks. He had followed a system called Mazarin, which should give him five for one, and possibly break the bank. Quite a crowd swarmed about the table, their faces glowing in the artificial light. The exclamation, plunging, plunging, was to be heard whispered here and there. Lynn was delightfully cool and straight. His lithe body was quite erect, his eyes reflective, his teeth set over an unlighted cigarette. Eileen was excited, as a child, delighted to be once more the center of comment. Lord looked at her with sympathetic eyes. He liked her, well. Let her be amused. It was good for her now and then, but Lynn was a fool to make a show of himself and risk so much money. Table closed, called the croupier, and instantly the little ball began to spin. All eyes followed it. Round and round it went, Eileen as a keen observer, as any. Her face was flushed, her eyes bright. If we lose this, said Lynn, we'll make one more bet double and then if we don't win that, we'll quit. He was already out nearly $3,000. Oh, yes, indeed. Only I think we ought to quit now. Here goes 2000 if we don't win. Don't you think that's quite enough? I haven't brought you much luck, have I? You are lucky, he whispered. All the luck I want. One more. Stand by me for one more try, will you? If we win, I'll quit. The little ball clicked even as she nodded, and the croupier paying out on a few small stacks here and there, raked all the rest solemnly into the receiving orifice, while murmurs of sympathetic dissatisfaction went up here and there. "'How much did they have on the board?' asked Miss Landman, of McKibben, in surprise. It must have been a great deal, wasn't it? Oh, two thousand, perhaps. That isn't so high here, though. People do plunge for as much as eight or ten thousand. "'It all depends.' McKibben was in a belittling, depreciating mood. "'Oh, yes, but not often, surely.' "'For the love of heaven's poke,' exclaimed Reese Crier, "'coming up and plucking at his sleeve. "'If you want to give your money away, give it to me. "'I can gather it in, just as well as that Croupier, "'and I'll get a truck and haul it home, "'where it will do some good. "'It's perfectly terrible, the way you are carrying on.' Lynn took his loss with equanimity. Now to double it, he observed, and get all our losses back, or go downstairs and have a rarebit and some champagne. What form of present would please you best? But never mind. I know a souvenir for this occasion. He smiled and bought more gold. Eileen stacked it up showily, if a little repentantly. She did not quite approve of this, his plunging, and yet she did, she could not help sympathizing with the plunging spirit in a few moments it was on the board the same combination the same stacks only doubled 4000 all told the croupier called the ball rolled and fell barring 300 dollars returned the bank took it all well now for a rare bit exclaimed Lynn, easily turning to lord who stood behind him smiling you haven't a match have you we've had a run of bad luck that's sure Lynn was secretly the least bit disgruntled for if he had won he had intended to take a portion of the winnings and put it in a necklace or some other gigaw for aileen now he must pay for it yet there was some satisfaction in having made an impression as a calm and indifferent though heavy loser he gave aileen his arm well my lady he observed we didn't win but we had a little fun out of it i hope that combination if it had come out would have set us up handsomely better luck next time eh he smiled genially yes but i was to have been your luck and i wasn't replied Eileen. you're all the luck i want if you're willing to be come to the richelieu tomorrow with me for lunch will you let me see replied Eileen, who observing his ready and somewhat iron fervor, was doubtful. I can't do that, she said finally. I have another engagement. How about Tuesday, then? Eileen, realizing of a sudden that she was making much of a situation that ought to be handled with a light hand, answered readily, Very well, Tuesday. Only call me up before. I may have to change my mind or the time. And she smiled good-naturedly. After this, lynde had no opportunity to talk to aileen privately, but in saying good night he ventured to press her arm suggestively. She suffered a peculiar nervous thrill from this, but decided curiously that she had brought it upon herself by her eagerness for life and revenge and must make up her mind. Did she or did she not wish to go on with this? This was the question uppermost, and she felt that she must decide. However, as in most such cases circumstances were to help decide for her, and unquestionably a portion of this truth was in her mind as she was shown gallantly to her door by Taylor Lord. End of chapter 32